This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now, producer Leah Tebbit is taking us to the heart of the North Island, where the Whanganui and Rataruki rivers converge. Hey, well, welcome to Top of the World on a on a pretty uh, murky spring day. But uh, every day is different, and you'll see a, a character around the place anyway. Um, but uh, you've got 360 degree views of the rainforest and. On a nice day, you'd be looking straight at uh, Mount Tongariro, Narahoe, and Ruapehu over there, and out the back through the saddle, back saddle, you'd see Mount Taranaki. You're kidding. And, yeah, you would be seeing the you'd be seeing the top of the world. So but, I have uh, to come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> top of the, you'd be seeing the top of uh, the North Island, or yeah. yeah, top of the world. It might be a bit ironic down here at the bottom of the world, but <laughs> that's how we feel anyway. <whistles> so they just make us sort of neary. Whistle like that. That's a pretty poor imitation, but. We're on the hunt for a feel, a blue duck. You'll be familiar with it as it's on the back of a $10 note. It's also the namesake of Dan Steele's livelihood, Blue Duck Station. The working sheep and beef farm is home to 6,000 sheep and 700 cattle, plus a small deer farm. But it's not the only thing happening, as Dan's goal is to preserve the history and conserve the wildlife and its habitat, and it's achieved with the help of various tourism activities. But to get a good grasp, we head to a newly constructed wetland, where Dan's story takes shape. Pretty cool here. See, look at the bird life, you know, and listen to the bird life. There's a kahu and a pair of kahu and all the different types of ducks. There's a dab chick right in the middle. So that's what I was hoping to show you today. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, there's yeah, a little dab chick, and um, you put these wetlands in, and we just have done this one over the last few years. Um, look, there's even a blackback seagull, and there's so much life here. But having the dab chick, you know, uh, not often you see those out here, and there's a breeding pair of dab chick, and hopefully they're gonna live and stay and breed here. So those are grey ducks taking off. Um, there's some grey teal taking off on the far side. And the kahu, spurring plovers, paradise ducks. It's all go here. So there's um You, you can know, tell by the noise, eh? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you put a wetland in like this, which was just a swampy part of the paddock anyway. And so I've dammed it up and designed it all out here so it goes right back up into the flats there. Planted natives around it. And uh, shallow water and deep water. It's got uh, two sort of water sources coming into it. Where does it come from, the both, water? Both water sources here are coming from under the road. It all sort of comes out of these big steep hills out behind us. So that's some, some of the higher points on the station up there. The yeah, highest point yeah. on the station is 600 metres above sea level. And uh, yeah, pretty gnarly bluffs. But when it rains hard, 
the water just comes pouring out of those big, steep bluffs and faces and runs down these streams and can flood pretty badly. But unbeknown, 100 years ago, everyone just tried to get the water from the hills to the main river as quick as they could and they drained all the wetlands and the swamps and they just opened channels so the water can run straight through. It's like a fire hose. And it causes terrible erosion. And so what I'm trying to do here is put the wetlands all back in, slow the water down so it just comes down and it starts slowing down and, and losing that sedimentation and, and cleaning up so we can clean up the main river, which then can clean up the Whanganui River, which then can help clean up the ocean. <laughs> and so it's from the mountains to the sea, you know, just getting involved with the catchment groups around. And so we've started the Retoruki catchment group here, which is a bit over 50,000 hectares catchment on this river, which is uh, part of the Whanganui Region Catchment Collective, which is 800,000 hectares of water quality and biodiversity and more sustainable farming in communities. And we're trying to be uh, showcasing and helping people see that looking after Mother Nature and things is, is uh, good for everyone long term, you know, and good for the value of our products. So here's the little, oh, here's a pair of dab chicks. So you come around here, look at these little fellas. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you, yeah, they're going to stay on the other side. Oh, they're coming towards us a little. You know, when you see them in the distance, you, you might just think they're a, a duck or a teal. But um, So the pair of dab chicks is, is pretty cool. And a pair of pretty noisy paradise duck. <laughs> yeah. One of our goals with conservation is to, to actually bring back species that have disappeared from here. It's something we, we would really like to see happen, and, and that would be a success milestone. And do you do it all yourself, this kind of work? Or, or you know, with the crew of people that Yeah, that's that right. Yeah. You, I mean, we'll take any help we can get, and we, and we work with government departments where we can, yeah. but think that when you're dealing with critical things like uh, water quality and biodiversity, I think uh, businesses have to take a lot of, of this on themselves. And farmers own right, most of New Zealand, right? So farmers looking after... New Zealand, it's a huge opportunity and uh, it's in fact very necessary. So we work with anyone we can, but mainly driving it ourselves in partnership with our volunteers, that uh, our eco-warriors that come and help out. Yeah. That's wicked. So it, cool. It feels like we're basically in the middle of the North Island, you know, because driving down here, we've got Tomaranui sort of behind to the top of us. Yep, to the, to the, to the north is the Forgotten World Highway coming through there, uh, Whangamomana over the other side of the Whanganui National Park, if you like, Whanganui National Park all to the south of us, Tongariro National Park out there to the east of us, yeah. and a whole lot of hill country and going north to Tomaranui into the King Country, Hill Country, yeah. How did that conservation journey start for you? Because you said you started planting in 2005. Or, or trapping, mostly out. trapping predators yeah. was the first thing. And, and then, yeah, trapping predators and trying to protect habitat, for certainly for the blue duck. And the thought with, with the blue duck is if you look after the blue duck, you look after everything. You look after water quality and, and uh, if you're trapping predators, you're looking after everything. And these are things you need to do to look after the, the blue duck. But the blue ducks at the bottom of the environment and in the, in the water system, if you look after them, you look after everything above as well. Yeah, I, I love the diversity of the world, and so anything that takes away the diversity of the world is, um, is, is got to be really, really questioned. And a lot of our systems are, are killing the diversity of the world, so we've got to change those, and yeah. we've got to start uh, thinking about things differently. 
Yeah, and and so the conservation journey for me is pretty natural, and I I just I'm on a journey, you know. I'm just learning all about these things, and I don't know very much about dab chicks at all, but I'm going to learn because now they've moved <laughs> onto my wetland, you know. I'm going to learn what they need. I'm going to come and um, do some more trapping around these wetlands and put a bit of uh, poison where it's required to take the rat numbers out and things like that and give everything here a, a full chance of surviving. Mm. But we might need a series of wetlands so we can have a population here, and that's certainly what I'm looking at because I've got the territory for it, you know. I've got all the water coming out of the hills and all the streams running into my river systems and you know, I've got river systems here. I mean, I'm pretty fortunate to have that, uh, that can sustain blue duck and, and, um, and a myriad of other things. But, you know, got... We hop back into the side-by-side on the hunt again for a blue duck. Dan drives through the hub of the farm, past various houses of family that now call the station home. We race past a cafe various accommodation for hikers, hunters and others here to enjoy the fine dining experience, horse treks and bush safaris. I passed a sign saying Wanganui National Park. Yes, you're just going through my land and now there's a piece of Wanganui National Park and then you're back into my land again and then after a few kilometres further out you'll get to the Wanganui National Park proper. (laughs) So this is a paper road through here and so it's quite a historic journey out through the property. And there's Wanganui River, right? That's the Wanganui River. So that's the old depot building, and uh, that was the last original building from 1917. Hand-split cladding and timbers made with an axe. The original corrugated iron from 1917. So it's a bit of history right there. Thanks to some rain, we decide to take cover where I get to learn about the history that makes this space and venture special. It's real rain there now. So it doesn't look very um, watertight. No, no, like I say, say, hand-split timbers from 1917, hand-pulled nails. Look at the even names going back to 1940 carved in the door. But you come in and uh, it's almost completely dry. So the 1917 roof still, still works fine. The history of this place started around the settlers coming in here and trying to turn this country into farming, right? Or, or was it post-war? Oh, where you're standing right now it did, but the Wanganui River was very much uh, Māori history first because they were using it for uh, access way up into the central North Island and hunter-gathering, food-growing. And then in here, which was pretty well uninhabited previously, this was developed by the 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 first settlers and post World War One. So this was a World War One development block. Yeah. And they walked out. They couldn't do it. Pretty much, most of them came in, and uh, the access wasn't reliable enough. It was too remote for a lot of people. The land was just too tough to break in and run anything profitably. And then in, by 1942, the government said, "That's enough. We've gone through the big depression, and we've." Uh, done a few things but we're not going to keep those roads open anymore it was a mistake and please get out so the last settlers walked out of here with what they could carry on their backs and now it just goes down as a piece of New Zealand history and the the bridge to nowhere is a place that a lot of people put on their bucket list and want to visit just to experience that uh, that piece of our past year I 
often come in here, even on a little bit of a rainy day like today, and you sit inside this depot building that was providing shelter for them 100 years ago, and you can start to put yourself a little bit in their shoes and think, right, well, you had to walk in here and you're trying to cut a farm out of the bush with an axe and a saw and create a living and hopefully get a family in here at some stage. And what was it like? Thinking about that in terms of trying to make it work, thinking about how those dudes tried to make it work, is that where the tourism came in for you? Because I'm guessing when you first were walking around here, before it was even Blue Duck Station, mm. it was just farmland, and, and that was what you Pretty intended much. it to be. Pretty much. There'd been the odd little dabble into tourism, and, and my neighbour was renting canoes and, and one or two things, but tourism was a real natural thought of diversifying the land and and valuing its beauty and, and uh, yeah, unique attributes. Uh, the catalyst for that for me was travelling the world and I'd seen this after my parents bought here 30 years ago this year and came home with a burning ambition and that's what I'm doing. The tourism side of the the station enables the station to be successful like in terms of with the wool and things like that, not selling for a good price. Does it all tie into each other that's right. to make it all work? Yeah, very much. So, you know, we've got these products, wool, honey, timber, meat coming off the station, but out here in this sort of environment and, and uh, how it's pretty hard farmland, we need to be able to add value to those, but we can use the tourism and tell our stories and then sell some of our products back to our guests and create our own brand and our market and tie that back into putting some of that money back into Mother Nature, which recreates the cycle again, you know. And so we're making our own place more and more beautiful every year as we go. And then inherently that's going to add more value to, to what we're doing. So hopefully it's a real virtuous cycle. With the rain eased, yeah. we get back to finding a blue duck. Yeah. So this is great blue duck habitat, uh, kiwi habitat, native bats everywhere out here. True. Lots of Lots of things, eh? So there'll be things out here we don't even know about yet. This is a big old remu that just decided to fall over the track here. And True. Yeah, yeah, just, you know, just you know, big old remu. Yeah, and get up, Bruce. Get up. Get up, Bruce. Sit down there, Jinx. A little bit slippery down here, not too bad. I'll just pop up and see if they're there. But you just yeah. hang out here under a tree or a punter. Yeah, fair I'll just enough. have a quick look with that here. If they are, we'll have a closer look, eh? Yeah. Hey, there's a male roosting right here, Leah. And uh, so we're just going to sneak around this punger and you're going to see him sitting on a semi-submerged rock in the middle of the river. He won't be too worried about us, but we'll just let him know quietly that we're here so he doesn't get a fright. And he's just roosting on his own, I think. And you can see a blue duck by the white beak. If you see a duck in the distance, if it's got a white beak, it's a blue duck. So come around there, right in the middle of the river. Oh, yeah. You got him? Yeah, I got him. Yeah, yeah. He is just sitting there. Yeah, yeah. So um, the good thing here is if we can't see her, it means she's um, probably on the nest. Right. And like I say, he's just uh, standing guard. So he's just putting his beak away. He's going to go back to sleep now that he knows we're here. Yeah. So he is really just standing guard. Yep. 
He's just like waiting. A, um, he's waiting for her, and a, and um, and like just a soldier in the night. But that's a uh, look. It's a beautiful habitat out here to see one in. Yeah. And uh, there he is. He's just standing. It's so. If you didn't know what you were looking for, that's right. He merges well, so well that's as right. well. And that's that's exactly what they are. They're perfectly camouflaged in their habitat. You know. A lot of these rocks are, are blue papar and and, um, and sandstone and grey wacky and, and yeah. uh, the blue duck is really a, is a grey you know grey blue colour. Uh, he's got a beautiful crimson fleck to his chest and you can just see the light reflecting off that at the moment. Is that to identify that he's a male? No, no both ducks are almost identical colours, the male and female. But um, that's the male because he's standing guard and she'll be on the nest and uh, they make completely different noises so the male whistles and that's a <whistles> like that eerie whistle and the female makes a hard case sort of uh, purring uh, noise she's um, sort of yeah pretty special eh? yeah it is special um, yeah it is Leah was talking to Dan Steele there and if you're interested in learning more of the history of the property, you can read about it in a new, visually stunning book entitled Blue Duck Station. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Anabotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.